Hello and welcome to Dinish Guarda Cities ABC Open Business Council series. We are a fast-growing YouTube podcast thought leadership channel focused on profiling the global leading inspiring people, CEOs, authors, technologists, academics, the global expert changing and creating solutions for our world. We highlight ideas, products, invention, platforms, software, books and solutions to the multiple challenges and opportunities we face in our cities and nations with the advent of Society 5.0, Fourth Industrial Revolution, all the areas of digital transformation, the emerging technologies of especially blockchain, AI, fintech, IoT and all the areas of digital transformation, especially in social media. This podcast series are produced and distributed on citiesabc.com and openbusinesscouncil.org and syndicated in the media platforms associated intelligenthq.com, fashionabc.org, edgefink.com and tradersdna.com. And uh, we started this series because of the need to reflect and bring um, independent, scientific and as well uh, inspiring way of profiling personalities that we deeply respect from a lot of different areas, a lot of different geolocations, but as well people that are making a difference in their different areas with their profiles and their initiatives and their work. So today um, I welcome Neil Millikan, uh, someone actually that I deeply respect and I know for some time, especially on the digital world, and only recently I started having a more direct relationship. So Neil Millikan is responsible for accessibility and digital inclusion at Atos, uh, where he's leading the global position of head of accessibility and digital inclusion, and member of the scientific community at Atos, one of the global technology corporations uh, based in France, but a global outreach. So Atos is a, a digital services organization with 123,000 employees in 73 countries and serving a global client base, bringing together people, business and technology to deliver digital empowerment to their clients and ecosystem. And this as well a worldwide information technology partners of the Olympic and Paralympic Games and a partner of the Business Disability Forum and a member of the International Association of Accessibility Professionals and the International Labour Organization of Global Business Disability Network. And that brings as well the work that Neil has been doing as a member of the Atos scientific community, but as well as an influencer and global thought leader that has been highlighting the work in accessibility and encompassing how to design better services, better assistive technology services, and the creation of the first dedicated apprenticeship scheme for accessibility that has been leading within Atos. Um, as well, in 2015, Neil was recognized as a disability champion uh, of the year by the Business Disability Forum. And among a lot of things is the created of Access Chat, that is a, a global digital chat initiative and platform, especially in the digital world that has been highlighting personalities within the disability and accessibility world. And has uh, been as well a board member of the Charity World Institute on Disability and chair of the diversity board for the Institute of Coding. And uh, one thing as well that has been involved as, and I could go through a lot of other things, but I want to highlight as well the work he's been doing, especially in the, um, the show Trust Disability Power 100 list, and as well on the valuable500.com, that is a global movement putting disability on the business leadership agenda. So that's a lot of other things here uh, from uh, the W3 Cognitive Accessibility Task Force, where Neil has been invited expert and a lot of the work has been doing both between the corporate world and the um, society world, which I really admire. So, Neil, welcome to our series. It's a pleasure to have you here. Thank you. Um, I'm, I'm not used to quite such a fulsome introduction. Um, it's a pleasure to be with you. Now, I think it's important to highlight what people are doing because sometimes we forget, <laughs> even the yeah. ones that we deal with. <laughs> so I think uh, especially when someone is doing so much great work, we should loud it and congratulations for that. And I want to start by that because it's, your work is sometimes very invisible because it is something that is touching so many people. And uh, at the same time, most of the people are not seeing it. 
So I want to highlight it and preach it in a good way. Of course, with the right, the right respect that it deserves. So, Neil, I, I, I want to start with the, of course, uh, I always start with the basis, your education, your background. And as well, I know that you have some disabilities on your own that you've been as well managing. Um, and I want to tell, start by that, because I think when we talk about disability, we tend to put that in a box and we tend to somehow be a bit of, okay, sorry for these people. When we should not be sorry. I, I'm, I'm actually the son of a, a, a um, my father is a disabled person and I always, I never saw him as a disabled person. I just saw him as a man that was my father that I deeply respect. So I want to start by your education and of course, how do you achieve to be the person you are and, and the global uh, leader that you are today? Okay, so... Um... I may work in technology now, but I started my education in the arts. I did English and history at Oxford um, and didn't really um, understand my own dyslexia and ADHD. Those are the two conditions that I have um, that profoundly affect the way I think and, and the way I experience the world around me. Um, but the way that they teach you um, at, at Oxford is very oral and, and therefore um, a lot of the time uh, I was able to mask my, my, my conditions. Uh, that said, um, it's not to say that it wasn't um, quite challenging to go through uh, an, an education like that. Um, and when I came to do my, my second degree, uh, I was already working in the field of assistive tech and I took advantage of all of the technologies that were available. But when I, when I started my education, I was in that sort of intergenerational cusp where even though my sister's only three years younger than me, she used computers and I didn't in, in education. So um, all of the sort of, all of my educational experience until I finished my first degree was through handwriting stuff. Uh, and, and doing stuff manually. Uh, that transition to using computers was that road to Damascus experience for me uh, because I found that being able to um, use simple things like um, tasks and reminders and email and being able to use spell checkers transformed my experience and, uh, and my ability to produce uh, quality written work uh, without it being so taxing. So um, even though I didn't end up working in assistive technology until it was really a second role, in, uh, a second sort of step in my career, uh, I was already enjoying the benefits of, of tech in an assistive way um, uh, much earlier in my life. So uh, that conversion to technology really um, was a burning passion uh, for me to... to use tech more uh, and I ended up working for a company uh, in Cambridge which was specialized in providing tech for people with dyslexia and that was about 20 years ago we we're looking at speech recognition systems uh, and providing uh, not just systems but um, wraparound uh, support for people who needed it to be able to um, have the support of tech and, and, and training to really maximize their abilities. So that was the sort of seed that, that started off my passion. I've been working in the field ever since. Um, it's become all-consuming, as you kind of read out from my biography. I spend a lot of time both inside and outside of work working on the topic. Um, but then I truly believe that the between one and 1.3 billion people in the world that, that live with disability deserve to have that equality of opportunity, that, that equity um, to be able to participate in life um, to the same level as everyone else. And we can do that through uh, a mixture of technology and also through policy, because not everything is, is reliant on tech. A lot of this is around social policy and frameworks and everything else. One of the things, so looking at your background, is, is definitely your education in arts and culture, and then the shift to technology brought you a broader research and sense of social responsibility and history that most of the technology players don't have. So I think that is kind of a very important thing. So I would like to to talk a bit about that. So, I'll, like you mentioned, 
the capacity to write, the capacity to research, which I think misses a lot in most of the engineer lead uh, corporate tech world that we live now. For instance, if you see at Google, all their founders are engineers and they are fantastic scientific people, but they're all engineers and they lack sometimes the humanistic perspective. And I think especially as we go to AI and all the areas of technology, this is becoming more and more important. But being in one of the leading tech companies yourself, I think it's an interesting point because you're part of the scientific uh, council, but as well, you are leading a lot of things that are increasing more and more important because sometimes when you talk about accessibility, you talk about UI UX, you talk about how users perceived and somehow all of us have some kind of disability. It might be uh, something that comes out of our culture or physical or mental. So I would like to touch a bit of this and I think that's very important for people listening to us. Okay, so um, absolutely. I think that there's, um, there's this concept that um, of around the models of disability where we, we, we often used to follow what was called the medical model and we would think about the physical, physical aspects of people's disability. Um, now, um, more recently, there's been a shift towards the social model where we think about the environment disabling people because you can have an impairment, but like you talked with your father, that didn't really disable him in society. He was able to have his own business and be successful within within his own life. Um, so that's that's fine, but there are, there are limitations to, to the model again because sometimes that model of sort of social model of disability doesn't actually um, understand the, the challenges of the impairment. So you kind of need this socio um, psycho model of disability that really um, takes into account both the, the challenges that you face as an individual as a result of your disability, because there are some that I, I face, but equally um, understand the impact that society has through the choices that are made. I think that then when we understand those things, we also can understand that, that there is this idea that some people are permanently disabled, some have a temporary disability because you know, they may have uh, a condition that is you know, short term, they may have broken their arm, for example, or may have cancer and you can get better. And then there are just these things where we, we are actually uh, situationally disabled. So um, you, know, you may not be able to use one of your senses or, or your hands or whatever because you're doing something else. So, so that, that particular case really affects pretty much everyone at some point in their day-to-day -day life. Uh, you know, you might be driving, so you've got your hands on the wheel, your eyes on the road. So, so two of your your things that you normally use to interact with the world, and particularly to interact with tech, are suddenly off the table. So the only thing you can really do is use two of your other faculties. You can use your voice and you can use your hearing. So you can interact by voice with your computer and you can listen to stuff. So, um, so when you start designing to be disability inclusive, then you can start to add these benefits. And, and that's where uh, inclusive design and accessibility really comes to the fore in benefiting everybody. From that angle, and I think uh, bearing in mind the complexity of, first of all, this defining um, disability and as well the relationship, because for instance, let's look at uh, some of the biggest minds in history um, have been actually people with strong disabilities. Um, and, uh, and as well, there's always this kind of myth that all the genius are somehow a bit of propensed to some kind of uh, mental issues. So how do you see that part? Because I think in one end, we have the paradox of the simple utility of the solutions for disability that are key, and especially as technology becomes our uh, kind of uh, extension as humans is, is critical. But in the other hand, there's all this kind of, in one hand, the visibility of the disabled, like you, you just mentioned, 1.2 to 1.5 billion people that are disabled. And if you look at all the people that are elder, that we're talking about 3 to 4 billion is more than 60% of the old population. So some, somehow any person that is elder has some issues because it's, it's not easy to move. And it's all the different things. So, but at the same time, this is same, it's something that is not still 
priority in our society. And as well, it, it brings us to what we, we are as humans, um, but as well, most of our technology is not built for that. So how do you cope with that? And I would like to touch that to go and then go into your career. Sure. So I, I, th I think that it's not a question of how do I cope with it. I think it's a question of, of framing it so that the organizations that design and implement and, and, and deliver technology understand the urgent need for this. Because as you said, there are uh, over 60% of the population that have either a disability or, or an age-related condition. And um, so therefore would benefit from some kind of inclusive design. Now, I think that as we design tech, we, we should be designing it to help people. All good tech should be assistive because the, the point of the technology is to help us achieve stuff. So um, as an assistive technologist, you know, quite often we think of tech as being digital tech, but I'm wearing, you know, an original piece of assistive technology here. We just have got so used to the fact that, that people, um, people's eyesight degrades as we get older, that we kind of forget about it as, as being an impairment. But without the glasses, I, I struggle to read. And um, so some of, some of what we're thinking about in terms of disability is around social conditioning. So the, there is an, an, an element of social conditioning. There's an element of teaching the, the technology companies that this is something that they need to do in order to actually reach their, um, the full potential of their user base and to enable that user base to reach their full potential. Um, and then on top of that, you know, we, we need to be thinking about the, the sort of economics of disability inclusion, because uh, aside from the fact that an individual product that is more disability inclusive is going to you know, enable more users, when we exclude people from using these products, we're also excluding them from society. And that has significant costs, not only for them, but for the societies that they live in because you're going to have to provide for them alternative services or alternative supports and all of that costs money and all of that gets funded by either the individual or the taxpayer so um so one of the things that i'm very keen to to sort of talk about is is finding new models that are aligned with understood models in other parts of of society so um the UN Sustainable Development Goals quite often talk about uh, frameworks and actually disabilities embedded in the UN SDGs. Uh, but I want to talk about, I like to talk about um, sustainable ac accessibility and the fact that when we don't include people um, in the, the designing and manufacturing of products, it's a bit like pollution because we have this externality of these effects on society and on the individuals and those costs are passed on, not to the producers, but to the other people. So we can take the same kind of frameworks that we're using for sustainability um, and move them and, and, and start using the same kind of concepts in terms of accessibility because we can start measuring these things. So, so I, I think that that's, that's an area where I, th I think at a macro level, we can start bringing organizations together it is a challenge because you know, we have to get these concepts understood. But I do think that, that business is really um, beginning to understand the, the, the value of measuring stuff, not just on shareholder value, but stakeholder value. So, so for, exa for example, within the organization that I work for, Athos, we have um, what we call our raison d'etre or our sense of purpose. That is voted upon by our shareholders, and a core part of that is around corporate social responsibility. And that CSR element has an element around inclusion. One of those, uh, one of the key aspects of that is us participating in the initiative around the Valuable 500. Valuable 500 is an, uh, an organisation which is um, designed to bring business and the power of business into disability inclusion. It's a CEO-led organization. So it, it, it's the CEOs of the, the largest companies in the world making a commitment to disability inclusion. 
uh, and to report on it. And, and I think that the reason that I've been supportive of this for, for a long time is because I see the importance of the power of business, the procurement power of business and the, the sort of halo and ripple effects across the supply chain as being extremely important levers of change within society. Yeah, this is kind of probably the most um, pertinent subject for the for the next actually decade. And I want to go back to that, but I want to highlight now before we go more on this more sure. top level concepts. So you are you have a big position within Atos, which is a, one of the leading global corporations in technology, and uh, you have a fantastic career background. Can you highlight some of these parts of your career, or did you end up in Atos, and some of the highlights? Because I think it's important for people listing how as well an organization like that is looking at this, but as well, how do you come back at, from that uh, Oxford education arts to end up in, in a... Yeah, so I, I, I bounced around a bit. I, I actually um, started my own record label. I was really interested in the arts. I um, manufactured niche vinyl and then sort of was embedded in club culture. Did not make any money from that. Um, and ended up doing a, a number of jobs to, to sort of support my vinyl habit. Um, and then ended up working in the sort of video export business, which led me to working uh, for an early dot-com company. So I was traveling around as a sort of international product manager. This is in the days before Amazon came to Europe. Um, and unfortunately, Whilst it was great fun and, and sort of groundbreaking at the time, it also went bust during the dot-com first bubble uh, breaking. So I found myself working for a, a, another company and ended up in Cambridge, which is how I ended up working for this company that specialized in, in um, technology for dyslexia. That was about 20 years ago now. I spent 10 years there um, working on their systems, running a business unit for them, which was specialized in the sort of services side of things, and then ended up um, working for Siemens on their BBC account, delivering assistive tech. Siemens bought Atos IT solutions, uh, and the rest, as they say, is history. So that's, that's sort of getting me into Atos. And then since then, I've really grown the competence within the organization, um, we have a, a sort of international group of, of people delivering accessibility services, uh, of which a large proportion are in the UK, but that will change over time. Um, and we, we do a number of things. One is, aside from all of the sort of fancy stuff that ASOS does, like quantum computers and landing space probes on comets, we also deliver people's sort of basic day-to-day -day digital workplace experience and we provide all of the sort of accessibility support for that uh, and, and, and that's a, a huge part of what we do making sure that people are able to work and able to be uh, effective in their work providing what are called workplace adjustments or accommodations if you're American um, and making sure that all of this stuff works together because the assistive tech that we provide needs to work with the mainstream tech. We then also do sort of accessibility testing and audits and sort of more sort of strategic consultancy as well. Um, and we do that both inside and outside the organization. And then as a member of our sort of scientific communities and our expert communities, we also get to have, have some fun and, and play with new tech. Uh, which is always the, the exciting bit. And, and actually, disability has always been at the forefront of tech. Um, lots of the technologies that we use today, things like um, text-to-speech and, and speech recognition, were driven out of the need to solve the problems of impairment. In fact, the typewriter, the telephone, the keyboard were all designed to solve challenges that were driven out of impairment. So um, technology is driven forwards by accessibility needs. And so when you engage with the accessibility community, you're learning stuff about uh, how people are going to be using tech in the future, because quite often you know, the disability community is, is really early adopting of this new tech as well. So 
as I said, I've been shouting at computers for 20 years with speech recognition. It's really only in the last six or seven years that that, that kind of text become mainstream and is now embedded in pretty much all of the sort of devices we have around us. Before that, there was lots of potential for the tech, but it didn't really serve the needs of, uh, of, of the general population um, robustly enough to work. But if you were dyslexic like me, then you would persevere with the speech recognition because it enabled you to do stuff like writing um, in a way that, that you wouldn't be able to do otherwise. And, and so um, understanding those kind of issues is, is really beneficial for organizations. So, so when organizations invest in, in inclusion and inclusive design, they're also investing in understanding what's coming into the future. Uh, and this is something that, that I, you know, I've managed to engage our leadership on and, and quite often our customers as well, um, so that they understand that, that they're not just serving a small niche, they're putting an investment into uh, you know, understanding how technology is going to be used in the future. Being in a very big corporation like Cartus, which is one of the biggest tech companies in the planet, and as well leading these specific areas, so I would like to, to touch a bit, of, because for instance, I think right now we have this kind of, especially in the last couple of years with all the, the, the clashes of tech and, uh, and society, there's been a lot of um, kind of a different ways we look at technology. Although we all love technology in one way or the other because we spend more and more time in our devices, in our um, digital platforms, but we have mixed feelings with the uh, big corporations and technology. So I would like to ask as someone that is touching a very, very precious thing, how do you, what is your official position? And I'm sure the, the artist position as well on this area, because I think it's particularly important to, to look at the positive part of things, because sometimes you only see the negative and sometimes the negative is very unilateral. That's only one area. Okay. Everything is bad. And, and that we forget the, the right good things that everyone is trying to do. Yeah. So, so I think that's a fair question. And, uh, we have this this organisation, our think tank, the scientific community within Atos, which um, every few years produces a, a, a thought leadership piece. And, and it, uh, in the previous one, we we addressed some of this quite significantly, where we were we were talking about the the, the sort of ethical frameworks which we we need to be able to uh, work within. Uh, and we spend quite a lot of time um, thinking about the ethics. But we, so it's the, it's not so much whether we could, but whether we should be doing this stuff. Um, and and we are talking about the sort of tensions between the various different things. So so we we've got this model which was almost like a, a set of springs, and they're going to pull one way or the other. And and it's not, as you say, unilateral. There is. There, there is much more to this. You know, there are potential benefits as well as potential harms to how you apply tech. Um, and, and so we have to do it in a mindful way. We have to do it in a way that is respectful of humanity and is thoughtful about the, the, the potential impacts that it could have. Of course, we can't know every potential impact. I'm sure that when... Um, the guys at Twitter, for example, invented, you know, their their very short microblogging service that they had no idea that they were, you know, tapping into people's lizard brain and, and uh, you know, uh, <laughs> taking over their intention spans and that they would have this um, polarizing effect on society. And it's not just Twitter, of course, that, you know, Facebook has a significant role to play in this, as does, as, as does YouTube. But... Um, it's those unintended consequences of tech that that we as large corporations and as society need to be mindful of and not rush headlong into techno-solutionism. We we do, as a European company, have a slightly uh, more, I think, philosophical view than than some companies that are founded just purely by engineers where they're thinking can we do this so so we definitely do think about the uh the the sort of should we element of the tech and um 
recently we produced another document again looking at this looking at the potential for sustainability and how tech can both contribute to and um, affect sustainability so um, f for example um, we are working towards being uh, carbon uh, net, net zero by 2035 with, as an organization which is you know, a significant ambition, and we're putting in decarbonization level agreements into uh, the contracts that we make with our customers. So we're taking carbon out of our services. So that requires us to start designing tech in a different way because we're starting to design um, for different parameters. It's not just about speed. We're thinking about uh, energy consumption uh, and um, heat dissipation and so on and so forth. So, uh, for example, in the supercomputers that we make, um, Atos has a, a brand of supercomputers uh, under the Bull brand. Uh, we actually use warm water cooling for that. Um, and what this means is that we're actually using a lot less energy because we're not chilling, super chilling the water down in order to um, cool down the computers, we're actually using warm water and we're still able to take the heat away from the processors and to cool them down and allow them to be efficient, but it's using a lot less energy. And, and so it's these kind of things that we need to be designing for um, that where we're going to have a long-term large effect on, on society. And, and, and thinking about this in terms of uh, humanity and, and, and end consumers, you know, when you have a device like this, but essentially you don't think about how much energy you're consuming when you're tapping on your device. And, and yes, you see your battery going down, but when you're accessing a product, most of the, the energy that's being consumed by using that product is not being consumed on your phone, it's being consumed in a data center somewhere. So, um, making those kind of things efficient and um, better for the planet is, is really very important to us as an organization and we believe is important to our partners. Uh, and, and of course, we, we want to encourage not just our partners, but also um, our competitors to do this too, which is why we engage a lot in reporting initiatives so like the GRI, the CDP, um, the Dow Jones Sustainability Index, and all of these things also tie back to what I'm doing around accessibility because there is an element in the reporting on a lot of these around social factors. And, and, and what I'm trying to do at the moment is influence these indices to be able to actually have really clear and strong metrics around disability inclusion because at the moment they're quite woolly. Yeah, that, that's quite cutting edge and that's really very important for everything we're doing right now. So I want to touch um, on this direction. So, um, and I think especially because Atos is uh, the world wild um, Olympic and Paralympic uh, technology partner. So you have a, a big responsibility both on providing all the technology for the, the most important game activity in the world and as well for the Paralympic, which is the complementary part. So, can you tell us about that? Because very few people know about that. And I know that there's been uh, um, a lot of things coming out of there. And I think, uh, of course, the, the next Olympic Games were supposed to be this year in, in, in Tokyo. And they're going to be next year. So it's quite interesting to look at these two things. And as well, the, you guys being the provider of technology for that. Yeah, so we have been the partner for the Olympics and Paralympics for a very long time now. Uh, we do a lot of this in the cloud now. Um, we used to sort of build stuff on-prem, um, but, but essentially a, a lot of those control centers are, uh, and all of the analytics, all of the um, security stuff um, we provide for, for the games and for the, the, the IOC. Um, yes, we, um, we were supposed to be in Tokyo this year. It's a shame, I've always wanted to go. Um, Fingers crossed for next year, but um, but yes, the, the, there's a huge amount of effort that goes into um, setting up the infrastructure for these games, making sure that not only um, 
is the sort of computing power in place, but we need to be delivering real-time results in multiple languages to all of these, you know, these broadcasters and, uh, and so on. Um, so we, we have a, a large team of people that uh, travel to where the Olympics and Paralympics are going to be, and they live there for a couple of years, and, and we test stuff to breaking point for years and years. You know, that's the only way you can be robust enough to survive an event of this kind of magnitude. And um, you know, we're, we're looking forward to both Tokyo. We've now got a run of essentially um, three sets of games in the space of four years because we've got the delayed Tokyo games, we've got the winter games, and then we've got Paris 2024. So um, we're not going to be short of work to do over the next few years. And, and of course, with, uh, with Paris particularly, you know, it's, it's the, you know, our, our company's hometown. Um, so we, we want to put on a, a, a good show. Aside from the sort of backroom boy type stuff technology, um, we do all of the, the sort of identity management and the passes and the clearance and the biometric security stuff. So um, the, the sort of breadth of what we do is, is, is quite significant. From a Paralympic point of view, I think that it's, it's really interesting because there's a real thirst within the sort of Paralympic movement to be more innovative. Um, I think that the Paralympic athletes are, very much open to augmenting themselves as human beings, whereas traditional um, sport is very anti-augmentation. If you look at um, anti-doping, for example, any kind of advantage that you might get through technology or chemicals is frowned upon, whereas actually um, the Paralympic movement is, is very much thinking, well, how can we you know, improve our prosthetics, improve the, the bits of us that, that we're, we're um, building to attach to ourselves to, to, to be better, faster, stronger. Um, and I was in a com- conversation with some Paralympians and a Paralympic sprinter uh, about two years ago where he said he predicted the day wasn't that far away where a Paralympian would absolutely thrash uh, an Olympian at the 100 metres because they will have um, developed technology that enables them to run faster than uh, a non-augmented human. So, so I think that the Paralympics is a really good example of uh, where disability is, once again, um, leading innovation. No, completely. That, that is quite... Uh... Uh, a big thing that I think people sometimes underestimate because the, all the infrastructure, all the the technological uh, um, as well foundations, but as well bearing in mind all the geopolitical accessibilities around an event like this, and then all and for instance, when it comes to Paralympics, it's even more complex because you have the geopolitics, but you have as well people with a lot of different uh, issues and, 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 and issues and, and as well uh, strugglings. Right now on the verge of the fourth industrial revolution and there's concepts of, uh, of course, the emerging technologies, the frontier technologies, and uh, we have as well uh, all the areas of social media and all the areas of um, artificial intelligence that are right now becoming more and more important. And you touch, for instance, uh, speech recognition and a lot of things that right now even our phones with all the sensors that are starting to know almost anything about us and as well probably monitoring is more than we want but at the same time there's fantastic things that come out of this and a lot of concerns so how do you see this part especially when it comes to the present and future of work and as well the work you've been doing with the access um, chat which is a fantastic work with you've been doing with uh, Deborah Rua and Antonio Santos and as well, a lot of the, the personalities and influences worldwide that you've been bringing to the platform to reflect these things. So let's look at the social media aspect. I, I, I think that social media has been a great um, coming together place for uh, the disabled community, particularly Twitter. Uh, Twitter has 
the simplicity that, that made it possible for certain communities to be able to, to use the technology, particularly uh, you know, uh, the blind community, with it being so simple to begin with, only 140 characters, text only, um, that meant that it was a, a kind of communications channel that naturally worked for them. It also naturally worked for me as a dyslexic person because it was short chunks of text and short communication. So I was able to sort of concentrate on it and be able to, to see this stuff. I think there's also sort of the fact that social media gives you a dopamine hit also may have had something to do with the fact that, you know, with a dopamine deficiency being part of ADHD, why I got so interested in social. But, but at the same time, it was a great community for being able to learn about technology and learn about best practice from others. And, and so when we started Access Chat nearly six years ago, it was because we wanted to learn. And um, so every week we interview a different person on, on a different topic related to inclusion. And as a result, we've now got 200 plus hours of, of footage, of, of videos, of, of people talking about all of these different technologies, uh, their, their uh, approaches to life and so on. And, and so for me, it's been a very rich learning experience, but we've also built a community. Uh, and, and so the, the learning hasn't just been from the guests, it's been from the community because every week as we discuss the topics, we're hearing from the disabled community about their views on these topics, how they um, face challenges in particular areas and how they also solve those challenges because for the most part they are solvable and we are able to find our ways around them. And that's why, as I said before, disability is actually a trigger for innovation. Um, I think that there is still a good disability voice on social media. Um, and, and if anything, it's been a bit of a sort of peaks and troughs of, of, of accessibility. So new features have been introduced, for example, images that, that were more accessible for some, more engaging for some, but also brought their own challenges. So uh, when they first introduced you know, adding images to Twitter, that, that wasn't accessible for the blind community. Now you can add image descriptions. More recently, uh, there were voice tweets which were problematic for the deaf community, and, and we're working our way through that one right now, and, and Twitter are, are busy appointing an accessibility team. Um, likewise, um, with Facebook, for example, they've uh, enabled captioned video, and actually what they're seeing is that the captioned video ha actually has much higher engagement rates and, um, and generally longer watch times than non-captioned video. So there are good SEO reasons for wanting to, um, to caption the video aside from being inclusive. So those are some elements. And then there is this whole sort of community bringing together, making connections, um, advocacy for change thing that, that is also part of what we, we do. Um, and, and is very important to me because I believe that, that we want the world to change and that we can do this by collaboration. Um, and, and so social media is a, uh, a convening space and a collaboration tool. It's enabled me to meet lots of people and bring them together, make connections between people. I'm not always doing the stuff. I'm connecting people so that they can do stuff. But always the aim is to help make a, a better, more inclusive world, uh, one where it's more equitable and fairer for people. No, completely. And I think that is a fantastic work because you, I think especially the access 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 chat <laughs> I always know never know how to spell it correctly um, it's been becoming one of the biggest uh, digital platforms worldwide to reflect this especially from a thought leadership perspective and congratulations for that work so from that work that you've been doing can you highlight just like some some of the special insights that you got especially because you've been interviewing very diverse people from from a uh, personalities in corporate world, but as well from disabled people with different things. So I would like to just highlight a bit of that. Oh, goodness. So, yes, we've, we've had a very diverse set of interviewees from politicians like uh, former uh, congressmen and, and the vice president of the Republic of Argentina, 
to comedians and actors like Stephen Fry talking about mental health. Um, but some of the most powerful ones have been people talking about their, their own conditions. I, I think for me, uh, a really powerful one was when we had a chap called Paul Stevenson on who was talking about Tourette's syndrome. So that's a very misunderstood condition. You know, he, he has uh, coprolalia, which is the, the bit that people understand Tourette's to be, which is the, 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 the speech and the, the, the swearing. Not everyone that has Tourette's has those kind of tics. But he was also explaining the, the sort of physical impact that um, Tourette's has on him as an individual. Uh, and that was something that, that people I, I don't think have really understood. I'd not really understood the, the impact that has on his body, being able, trying to control the tics. Um, it's destroyed his knees from falling down and, 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 and um, you know, and he you know, quite often puts the whole of his sort of musculature into spasm, trying to control this stuff. So, um, that was very powerful. I think also, you know, uh, some of the conversations we've had around mental health um, have been particularly powerful because, again, it's a hidden condition. And then also, I think some of my favorite ones have been um, where we've crossed over into looking at technology and art and disability. So it's it was a while back now, but there was a lady called uh, Catherine Gehrig, who started a, a movement on Instagram called Hospital Glam. And this was really around reframing people's um, sort of perception of disability and beauty and or lack of. Um, and so this was about taking photographs in a medical setting, but that looked like they were in vogue almost. So, so it was really to help change people's minds. And she also did this because she, it, it helped relax her in a situation that was very difficult. And, and I thought that this was a really great project because it's, um, again, yeah. uh, quite often people want to shut away disability and chronic illness and, and put it, compartmentalize it in a box. And this was saying, no, actually, you know, we may be chronically ill, we may be disabled, but we still have a life and we still want to be beautiful and we still you know, love these aesthetic things. So I think that, that those kind of conversations are, are, are really important, uh, really nourishing. And, and uh, some of the things I've most enjoyed about uh, the, the interviews we've done over the years. Yeah, that's that's very inspiring, and uh, I think it's one of the most beautiful things. And I've been uh, comparing your work on that, and it's really exceptional. Congratulations on that. So, um, as we pass right now one hour, I want to probably the last two questions, and I think it's been a fantastic talk. So, I think the um, one of the the questions is more a bit larger. So, with the fourth industrial revolution, and as well the concept of society 5.0, that is a bit more inclusive. Um, and all the areas of digital transformation, you talk about social media, this is transforming society as never before. And for instance, especially with artificial intelligence, we have things like bias towards technology, gender discrimination. I'm sure you have a lot of things. I would like to hear your input. How do you see, especially the, do you see a society that uh, I'm, I'm sure that you are working on that, especially with all your uh, ambassador work on these areas, but can we, how can we tackle technology to create a more inclusive society, especially in a macro element, and as well to tackle especially the, the main dystopic things that have been seeing, especially, you mentioned, for instance, the dopamine, the dopamine related to social media, and effectively we all spend probably more time in social media than sometimes with our families or in digital platforms. Uh, a bit of your insights on this, especially from as artificial intelligence, blockchain technologies, and more advanced technologies can actually make a lot of damage as well. I think this goes back to sort of mindfulness and design um, and having that framework around the, the deployment of technology. Technology to a certain extent is uh, agnostic uh, and neutral. And it's really the, the, the way that we design with the intent and our intent in the design. So, so I think there's definitely a need for regulation. The problem with regulation is that technology moves faster than governments do. 
So, so some of it needs to be a, a, a mixture of self-regulation and teaching the people that are designing technology, teaching it right from the inception, from in schools, that there needs to be an ethical framework. Um, engaging minority groups in the design of technology is really important. You know, we have seen the, the innate bias in the data sets that we already have. Society is already unequal. So we take historical data, what we're doing, and we build that into our AI models. We're building in bias and inequality. So therefore, we, we need to have disabled people, people of color, you know, people of different genders and, and, and sexual preference. Uh, as part of the design process so that we can capture this stuff and we can call out bias as we're designing it, look at putting in place things to mitigate that historical bias in the data. Um, and, and I think when we start to do that systematically, we'll, we will start to bring about some, some positive change here. Um, but it does, it does require that sort of inclusion right right from the beginning of the technology design process. And, and that's one of the reasons why I signed up for the Institute of Coding, because the aim of that organization and the aim of the work that I'm doing there is to include more people and include more people from a diverse background into technology careers so that the next generation of people aren't um, quite from the, you know, the narrow banned in society that they have been in the past. So uh, completely, and I think that is probably the most important thing, because I think when we speak about the problems of technology, we always tend to go and go um, very top level and everything, we put everything in a box. And normally these boxes, when you see it from a very non-helicopter view, or at least very macro, it's difficult to see the good out of the bad and you need to go through the layers and different things. So uh, as the last question, and, and then I want just then to reflect about your, some of your digital uh, highlights. Um, so you mentioned the, the code uh, institutes and a lot of things that have been working like the world Institute for disability and share uh, that you are a board member um, Institute of coding and a lot of different things. So with COVID-19, we are going through a massive, um, in one end, challenge because, of course, COVID is, is creating disabilities for millions of people and creating a lot of issues uh, from health to economical to even consequences of, of uh, that no one knows still, from, especially with lungs and different things. But as well as this is accelerating digital transformation for countries, for society, for companies. Um, and though you see in that right now, even countries that never really look serious in terms of technology are really taking this much more serious. So from this work, both on the top level with the, your work with the corporation, one of the biggest tech corporations in the world, but then with all these non-for-profits and organizations, and as well with your, I know that you are very energetic and very trying to find solutions. How do you see the COVID-19 and as well the opportunity, especially for people listening to us that are a bit struggling and as well a bit lost with all these challenges? Yeah. So I think we're all struggling to a certain extent. Uh, I, I can't say that I enjoy um, being confined to, to my you know, narrow social world. Um, whilst I've worked from home for the last six years, I used to travel a lot and meet lots of people. And um, you know, whilst it's really nice to be talking with you over a Zoom call, it's not the same as being able to meet you in person. Um, I think that that is going to have some kind of psychological long-term effects on people um, and you know, just the, the inequalities in society uh, are going to magnify that because if you are privileged enough like I am to have my own office space and a garden, then the impact of COVID is far less than on someone that is sharing their flat with their spouse, their four kids uh, and their grandma and trying to work whilst, you know, balancing one of those kids on their, on their knee while they're trying to home educate them and still be on the Zoom calls and everything else. So that kind of impact is, is really significant on some people and it's an uneven impact. So I think that, that we need to be thinking about that. At the same time, COVID has clearly shown 
that uh, flexible working, which is something that the disability community has asked for for a long time and told, was told wasn't possible, is possible. In fact, you know, some people are saying it's desirable. So I think that that, that myth has been blown out of the water. Um, what we now need to do is ensure that the tools that we're rolling out continue to be accessible or are made more accessible and that um, we make sure that we are keeping people you know, physically safe um, through providing them with ergonomic kit. Um, but I do think that we are going to see a very different way of working when we come back out the other side of the COVID crisis. I don't think it's going to be 100%. Everyone's going to work from home forever and ever. I think there will be mixed ways of working. Um, but I do, but I do think that that there will be a lot more in terms of sort of you know, stuff on video, um, and and the video will embed it into services in a in a way that um, that we hadn't thought about very much even twelve months ago. So you know, if we think back sort of ten, fifteen years to um, to the adoption of well. At the, 20s, uh, sort of in the year 2000, even 20 years ago, with dot com and, and, and the internet and, and e commerce and stuff, um, that had a significant shift on how we did business and how we worked. I think that COVID is going to have a similar effect for video in terms of video is going to become ubiquitous um, and we're going to be using video for all kinds of things that we hadn't previously. Um, and, and so I think that that change is, is, is going to stay, um, as is the impact that it's going to have on society and our cityscapes and our, our buildings and infrastructure, how that's going to play out. We're not quite sure yet because no one's really sure about how long the pandemic's going to last or what offices will look like, how we're going to come out the other side, whether it's through you know, mass vaccination or people keeping you know, social distancing going, etc. So you know, building design, um, city design, all of this stuff, transportation design is going to be affected by, by COVID. And technology has a role to play in that. But again, the most important thing for us to consider is humans because we're designing our cities, we're designing our jobs for people. And I think that's very inspiring. I think that's, uh, I think, so one of the things that I love about your work and everything you've been doing. So last thing, so where can people find you for the ones, of course, we're going to put all the links, but I know that you're very active. It's always good to highlight yeah. these and you are, have the, both the work in the corporate part, but as well the work in the non-for-profit and as well in social media. Okay, well, um, I'm on LinkedIn. My name, Neil Milliken. I'm on Twitter, again, at Neil Milliken. Access chat is at A-X-S-C-H-A-T, and that's both the hashtag and the at sign on Twitter. Um, those are the best places to find me. Uh, I'm, I'm active pretty much 24-7. <laughs> yeah for sure so that is and as well you are a global influencer on your own just on the digital side which is an, another massive task especially with everything you're doing so, <laughs> so that's where automation big... comes in <laughs> well not only automation you are really engaging that's a kind of an important thing as well I don't know if there's any uh, probably one last question that I want just to, to go for, for young people I think because I think one of the things I find as being a father is the challenge with the uh, explaining all these different things. So in one end, there's the technology velocity, and the other end, there's all the human part, like you mentioned, and the, there's the design as well. So any inspiring last words? Because I, I think especially the work you're doing in the Institute of Coding, uh, and as well the, the, the 500 companies uh, in terms of disability, I think this, this is very important platforms that I think everyone should be using, especially young people. Okay. So I, I think the, the thing to think about is actually know that you can have an impact and and to think about the work that you're doing and the technology that you're you're working with and how you can apply that in order to have that impact so so for me i'm always thinking about how can i use this new technology or this connection to achieve my end goal which is to foster greater inclusion now someone else might have a different end goal 
but I, I think you always want to have that sort of curiosity and long-term sort of approach to this stuff. Don't always think about how am I going to get payback now, but think about, well, you know, how do I build relationships that are going to be uh, trusting, mutually beneficial, um, and help me achieve what I want to in the long term? And how do I use technology to achieve these long-term goals? Of course, you know, use something to make it easier, but, you know, uh, and, and it's not to say that you can't have short-term goals too, but I'm always really much more interested in how can we do something in the long term? Yeah, and I think that's a very important thing, actually, for all the, the companies and for the, especially with the, with the challenge with the world economy. If you have a short term, we won't solve the problems if you look long term. And as well, it gives more hope for people and narrative, which I think is key. So, Neil, it's been a, a big honor and pleasure. I think definitely we'll have more things, especially with the accent that I want to bring to the future for the podcast. But for now, I appreciate uh, your time and your inspiration and the fantastic insights that you brought us today. Thank you very much.